Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Within 24 hours, Britain, Japan, and China sent shockwaves around the world as Prime Minister Boris Johnson resigned. Former Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe was assassinated. And China said that the takeover of Taiwan was key to its national rejuvenation. All this as Russia's war on Ukraine grows increasingly brutal and Kiev pleads for more arms and help to retake the territory that Moscow is slowly eating away thanks to a superiority of firepower and scorched earth tactics. Turkey is now under fire for allowing a Russian ship carrying stolen Ukrainian grain to sail from a Turkish port. President Biden prepares to head to the Middle East as uncertainty reigns over Israel's leadership and the outlook for the Iran nuclear deal that he and his team have pledged to resuscitate remain cloudy. Joining us today to discuss all this and more are Dr. Patrick Cronin, the Asia-Pacific Security Chair at the Hudson Institute Think Tank, Dr. Kathleen McInnes, who heads the Smart Women, Smart Power Initiative at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, former Pentagon Europe Chief Jim Townsend, who is now affiliated with the Center for a New American Security, and former Pentagon Comptroller Dr. Dov Zakheim, who counts CSIS among his many affiliations. Everybody, thanks very much for joining us. And before we get started, our global coverage is sponsored by Leonardo DRS. Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report, and Northrop Grumman supports our cyber coverage overall. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy, Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage, and we are a Farnborough International Airshow media partner, and our coverage of Britain's leading airshow is sponsored by Farnborough International and Leonardo DRS. And check out our Cavus Ships podcast hosted by our contributing editor, Chris Cavus, and our producer, Chris Cervello, who clear the fog on naval and maritime issues each week. This week featuring uh, Dr. Patrick Cronin, as well as Dr. Jerry Hendricks to discuss uh, China's new aircraft carrier, and tune in to the Downlink podcast with our contributing editor, Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful weekly look at all things space. Everybody, thanks very much for joining us. Uh, this week, we're going to be a little bit different. This week, we're going to go in a little bit of a different order. Patrick, uh, you're going to be starting us off. Uh, obviously, Shinzo Abe was a towering figure, not just in Japan, uh, as the nation's two-time and longest-serving prime minister, post-war prime minister, but a true leader on the world stage who was committed to returning the world's number three economic power uh, to a confident both regional, regional and global uh, leadership role. Uh, he was even more popular in retirement from office. Ulcerative colitis forced him to resign twice uh, and was cut down uh, early this morning by an assassin uh, with a homemade gun during a campaign rally for the Liberal Democratic Party that he, has, he had devoted his life to. Uh, I would point out that guns are heavily restricted in Japan, and there were 10 murders, according to the New York Times, by firearm last year, eight of which involved uh, the Japanese mafia, the, the Yakuza. Uh, Abe was a powerful force. He was recently arguing that um, Japan should consider hosting American nuclear weapons to bolster uh, deterrence, uh, even though Japan could easily go nuclear on its own. Patrick, what's Shinzo Abe's uh, legacy and what does his death mean for Japan and the nation's global uh, security role? Well, it's a very sad day, but his legacy will definitely endure. Um, he is the most consequential Japanese official in my lifetime. Um, he had a grand strategic vision for Japan. And when I entered uh, the, the subject of U.S.-Japan uh, alliance back in the 1980s, um, 
it was it was noted that the Japanese really didn't do strategy. Um, you know, they, they relied so heavily on the Americans for strategy. They were the economic and civil power. Shinzo Abe, more than anybody else, changed that. He he largely operationalized his grand strategic vision that had a realist appreciation for the balance of power and a liberal internationalist outlook on multilateral trade and institution building. And he had the Japanese blue blood pedigree that allowed him to stand up to a culture that prizes consensus and conformity uh, and to stand up to countries like China who wanted to play the history card and keep keep Japan down. Um, he was undaunted by all of that and persisted throughout. So, you know, from his grandfather as foreign minister and prime minister, you know, who's given a second chance, frankly, after the war, embraced the alliance um, and took on anti-Americanism back in the late 1950s, and 1960. You know, Abe inherited some of that. He attended USC in the 1970s at the time of the U.S. withdrawal of Vietnam. Um, and he saw the need for a, a tighter alliance. And so when he really entered politics, when his father, Shintaro Abe, was foreign minister back during the Ron Yasu Nakasone uh, you know, special relationship uh, that helped lead to redefine the guidelines for the U.S.-Japan alliance, it gave Japan a larger regional role and more responsibility. That would be a recurring theme for Abe as he moved forward in power uh, and up in power. And so in the 90s, when you have the end of the Cold War and there's a lot of uncertainty about the alliance, uh, it was Shinzo Abe, among others, who really championed a stronger Japan role with the United States to stand up against North Korean aggression. Um, that led to another redefinition of the U.S.-Japan uh, guidelines, which allowed for integrated ballistic missile defenses and joint uh, production, for instance. Um, and now you have uh, in this century, um, you know, after 9-11, a staunch ally, he became a uh, he became the visionary in his first stint as prime minister in this century, um, as uh, talking about the democratic diamonds of, of India, uh, Australia, Japan, the United States, of, of crystallizing the idea of a free and open Indo-Pacific. Um, and that would become the positive agenda that, that melded, again, balance of power with a positive agenda of internationalism. Uh, and standing up against autocracy. Uh, he really was able to though, implement so many things in the second stint as prime minister. Uh, and so during both the second term of Obama and, and the uh, Trump uh, administration, it was Shinzo Abe that had Japan helping to lead uh, really Western democracy uh, on many, many occasions, whether it was at the Shangri-La Dialogue in 2014, where he spelled out that there'd be no use of force to change the status quo in the South China Sea. He really uh, emphasized uh, the unity for the region for ASEAN, the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, playing a bigger role, the alliance, uh, tying it to India, tying it to Europe. Uh, and it's only now that uh, Prime Minister Kishida is able to talk about doubling the defense budget over the next five years of Japan. We'll see if that happens, but it's only made possible by all of the hard work and the career of Shinzo Abe. In terms of also uh, clarifying, right, I mean, he was uh, controversial and seen as a Japanese nationalist, but very easily caricatured, right? The complexity of the Yakasuni Shrine uh, in Japan is that war leaders happen to be buried at a shrine that is dedicated to the souls of those who serve Japan. So it is a complicated, um, I mean, we could blame the Americans there to, to a degree by allowing some of the, these folks who have been buried there in the first place, you could argue. Uh, I'm not trying to pass any bucks. Uh, and if I'm historically inaccurate, correct me. But Abe also did more than any other Japanese prime minister, at least in my memory, to increase security alliances with nations across the board, donating equipment to the Philippines, working with the Philippine Coast Guard, really filling an extraordinary and much more muscular security role. 
talk to us about that delicate balance that he was proudly nationalistic, believed Japan should play a more uh, prominent role, believed in the Japanese uh, Japanese American alliance, but also believed actually in making good. He wasn't the caricaturish nationalist warmongering figure that some of his opponents would like to portray him as. You know, that's right, Vago. I mean, I've been watching Japan my entire life. And, um, you know, Shinzo Abe is really the transitional figure that allowed Japan to move out beyond uh, imperial Japan and the role it played, and yet not completely um, depart from the idea that Japan wanted to be a world-class power, but to bring it into the age of democracies. Um, and uh, I think he, he largely operationalized that strategy. Um, and it makes him very different from his grandfather, who did a lot of good things as prime minister, but had a very checkered past in terms of the war. Um, and, uh, you know, you, you, one of the visions that, he, that Abe really wanted, the legacy issues he really wanted, um, I remember him telling this to me. I mean, he wanted to reform the Constitution. He wanted to do away with Article 9, which renounced uh, the use of force and the military. And it made Japan a second rate power. He wanted Japan to be a normal power again. And he didn't want to replicate the imperial Japan. He wanted to move forward as a, as a confident, strong Japan. And that won a lot of uh, plaudits, but it also won a lot of ire and anger um, in, inside Japan. He's still you know, very controversial and, and controversial in the region. In fact, on Chinese social media, when somebody on the blog was you know, uh, tweeting out that uh, on Weibo that um, you know, we should be celebrating in China, there were 150,000 likes almost instantly. And it shows you how you know, the, you know, the, the views on Abe were very polarizing in, in parts of the region, especially in China. But that's because he would not uh, brook any criticism from China. He was confident and he wouldn't, wouldn't brook it from South Korea even. He wanted to bring Japan forward, not, not backwards. Um, and while he didn't succeed in changing the constitution, he never had the political clout to do that. He did redefine the constitution. He redefined through uh, legislation and a new uh, piece in uh, legislation on you know, defense exports, on the role of collective self-defense. So you use the word alliance. He never uh, allowed Japan to go beyond the U.S.-Japan alliance as the only alliance, but he created these uh, quasi-alliances, these security partnerships that have been growing uh, in Southeast Asia with Australia, with India, with European countries. And that's a significant thing. He basically emphasized, what could Japan do? Don't tell me just what we can't do. And he kept doing what Japan could do. And it's, 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 it's made Japan a powerful, confident country here in the 2020s at a time when many people had written off Japan back three decades ago. Um, I, I, I'm one of the people who believes we have to get past some of the neuralgias, pay closer attention. The constitutional changes didn't mean the Japanese forces were going to march on Seoul again. What it meant was the constitution actually prohibits Japanese forces from helping the United States defend Japan. I mean, that was pretty much what was at stake. And 1% of GDP for defense is not sufficient for Japan uh, to build the military capability. And indeed, Japan focuses on platforms, but actually doesn't have enough of the munitions uh, it would need uh, in, uh, in the uh, event of a con uh, confrontation. Um, let, me, let me just shift gears a little bit. Actually, I'm going to bring Jim into the discussion briefly, because you were in uh, the Pentagon Europe seat at the time, Jim, where when Japan was actually starting to work more closely uh, with Europe, uh, and I know that that was something, you know, Japan obviously was the, the keystone ally for the Obama administration in the Pacific, and indeed every American administration. 
Talk a little bit about how that involvement, that interaction was growing and what that meant from a European uh, context. Because again, right, um, Abe was, 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 was playing a global game, not just uh, a regional game. Well, you know, it's interesting. I, I really think Japan helped make uh, a NATO more of a global alliance. As you know, uh, NATO has always been inwardly focused. Uh, territorial defense, the European allies, of course, it's transatlantic, but, uh, but it's been something that's, uh, tried, that's pretty much stayed within the treaty area until after the Cold War. And then uh, this, this idea of out of area or out of business began to take hold. But, but as part of that, it was also this idea that we need to be um, aware and we need to have friends in the, in the Pacific. And Japan, along with Australia, uh, were um, the leaders in trying to uh, have this make sense there in Brussels. Uh, we began to see the section go to Tokyo. Uh, we saw the, um, the idea of, of global partners. We began to rewrite the strategic concept early on, talk about a global alliance. So this is post-Cold uh, uh, War when NATO was trying to redefine itself and we needed partners who could echo back that, yes, NATO, that makes a lot of sense and we're willing to play. And Japan was a leader in that. So it was, it was something that uh, I think not a lot of people know, but, it, but uh, you know, there's this global nature until just recently with the rise of China and the idea that Europe needs to play a role there and, and NATO needs to figure itself out too in terms of a role it would play, that actually with Japan in the lead and Abe part of this, um, we began to get the signals back from, uh, from these allies, these very strong allies and partners there in the Pacific, the signal back that uh, we want to be uh, more closely aligned with you guys as well. And, then, and now they're, they're enhanced partners. They, they can't be closer than an enhanced partner. And, and there we go. And I do give Japan and Abe a lot of credit for that. Dove, uh, let me go to you briefly. You were just in South Korea. Uh, you know, how... How was Abe perceived uh, elsewhere in the region, including uh, by the South Koreans? Obviously, a very fraught uh, relationship from Japan's perspective. Uh, there have been a lot of apologies and contrition. And indeed, you could argue that the South Korean uh, industrial revolution was largely financed by Japan. Indeed, I mean, I, we, we really have to point out, uh, you know, as Japanese officials have told me, we feel felt badly about what we did and we felt we should play a positive role in that. And so Japan was a leading investor everywhere, including in Chinese industry, in Taiwan, in Vietnam and elsewhere across the region. What 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 sort of how do you think this news is going to be greeted elsewhere uh, in the region? Um, and, and how do you think uh, China manipulates this? Although I have to say it was it was a very um, very respectful uh, response from Beijing, you know, certainly not the grave dancing that we may have seen on social media. Go ahead, Duff. Well, uh, with regard to South Korea, I think, again, uh, they'll kind of be like the Chinese, very uh, formal about this. Um, I don't think he was terribly popular in South Korea uh, because remember, uh, it was until quite recently that Japan was up there with North Korea as South Korea's major adversary. Um, that has changed now. It's changed significantly. I think uh, there is a, a, a growing consensus that China is the major concern, not Japan. Uh, you know, and, it, and so China is now up there with North Korea as opposed to Japan. But I think Abe still represented to, to a significant extent 
um, you know, his grandfather's legacy. I mean, the, the fact of the matter is the South Koreans have not forgotten and don't want to forget. Uh, and uh, yes, uh, the Japanese have made some moves to uh, quote unquote atone. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, you know, when I was out in Seoul, uh, I kept hearing we, we keep trying to reach out to the Jap to Japan, but we get the cold shoulder. Um, they're concerned about the uh, monies that they have in South Korea that we don't want to release. Uh, and so there's still a, a, some ambivalence there and a feeling that, the, yes, the Japanese have made some steps to uh, normalize relations, but not entirely. There's still that element of, gee, you know, they, they really don't want to deal with us if they can avoid kind of thing. And, and Abe in many ways represented that. Um, it's interesting to see that from sort of the Japanese perspective, where we feel from their perspective, we feel like we've reached out so many times and that the, the Koreans keep defaulting back to an older place in, in the relationship. And when Japan said that they wanted fifth generation aircraft, Korea said, OK, well, now we have to get fifth generation aircraft, as Japanese defense ministers would say. We are not the threat. We're getting these stealth aircraft not to attack Korea. We're getting this because of Japan, for uh, because of China, for God's sakes. And this is going back 15 years. Uh, and I, I thought that that was always an interesting element of the uh, of the relationship. Uh, Kathleen, I want I want to go to you in terms of sort of putting a capstone on this and what what sense you have before we move on to uh, Boris Johnson, which was the other uh, big news. What his legacy is going to be and whether or not he really is going to leave office. I'm not entirely convinced. I think that he's going to have, I think we have more steps in this, but anyway, Kathleen, take it away. Oh, sure. Um, just reflecting on, on Patrick's comments, you know, and, and the evolution of Japanese defense policy and um, over the, the, the course of Abe's life and, and participation in, in Japanese politics. I mean, re remember that Japan contributed significantly to the Operation Iraqi Freedom Coalition. Um, they had a, a battalion strength um, peacekeeping mission. And when uh, that sort of became untenable, um, they had an air bridging operation. So the, the, the moves that have been made over Abe's lifetime um, have had a meaningful impact on our ability to perform coalition operations. Um, that's that when, when you think about it in that historical context, it's, it's pretty significant. Uh, and, and obviously, you know, financially very important. I think people have a tendency of, re of realizing that it wasn't just the military power, right? Japan would bring uh, a lot of soft investment power uh, in, in the background. But before, before we, um, hang on, one, one follow-up question to Patrick uh, before we move on. Uh, the announcement from Beijing uh, today that uh, the uh, reunification of the mainland with Taiwan is key to national rejuvenation. Uh, is there anything different in that state? You know, is, is, is this day different from all other days, right? I mean, is there, is there anything special about this statement or is it all like, what, what's, the, what's the timing, the impetus? Because I don't really see Chinese culture in retreat or crumbling disaster or no. just, just want to get your thought before we go over to Europe, Turkey and the Middle East. I mean, I think Beijing is uh, turning up, you know, the dial on uh, pressure here. Uh, it was already very high, so it's hard to, you know, notice the difference that the temperatures, you know, move from 90 to 92 degrees in the room. Um, but uh, when Lu Jai, the head of the Taiwan Affairs Office, outlined the strategy this week um, and said this is going to be the main goal 
um, and that this is is this is really about China's rejuvenation. It's going to hinge on forcing unification of Taiwan by whatever means we need, basically. Um, and while Chinese officials have made this clear for some time, the fact that this is the rhetoric going into the 20th Party Congress, the latter part of this year, suggests to me that Xi Jinping is not only bolstering and uh, using the nationalism to bolster his position going into that Congress, but he's likely to have to be even more um, pugilistic, more assertive uh, in the in the coming months, next year, and beyond. And so, um, it it it's hard to back off of this kind of rhetoric uh, for China, um, and they've turned that dial way up. So, I mean, you know, take that for what it is. It doesn't mean uh, war next year, but it doesn't mean uh, this is going to go away either. Uh, and and that's the problem, right? Whenever you make a statement like that, it becomes something that's difficult, right? Which is one of the reasons they're doing it. They're they're trying to. Uh, show that they have the will, the dedication, the devotion uh, to do this at a time when there are questions about whether or not Taiwan would respond, for example, uh, to aggression the way Ukraine has and, and the way it stepped up and how seriously Ukraine has has taken its security. A little bit of concern of Taiwanese friends of mine is that Taipei uh, and the administration have not been taking it as seriously uh, and whether Taiwanese society has become too successful, too, too soft uh, to, to do that. Um, I was reminded, by the way, uh, Patrick, when you were talking about the knob, right, spinal tap, right, this one goes to 11. It's, it's a little bit louder. Yeah, and, Michael, uh, and your analysis is exactly right, and I agree with exactly what you said, that what that poses, though, for our military and our armed forces is this question of deterrence and what goes into it, and do they have the political will, you know, backing our military? And, right. you know, are we doing enough to, to reassure Taiwan? And those are huge ongoing questions that China indeed is trying to test. Speaking of tests, uh, Boris Johnson uh, has been testing British democracy uh, throughout his time in office. Uh, I think we can agree. Um, obviously, the last uh, Pincher scandal, his uh, deputy chief whip, uh, Chris Pincher, was uh, uh, accused of um, assaulting males at a um, uh, London uh, club where he had had too much to drink. The question wasn't that specific incident, but that apparently Johnson gave him the deputy chief whip job knowing full well that these sorts of incidents had happened before. Uh, and so that's one of the reasons why this has become a scandal, but was not contrite, uh, said, you know, hey, the herd moves in dis different directions, them's the brakes, but hey, I'm still the vote getter. Uh, Dr. Uh, Alex Walmsley of uh, Rusi uh, joined us yesterday for a thoughtful discussion on both the legacy and where we are and where we're going. And two of the potential uh, candidates to replace him as prime minister are, are both, uh, are, are one is a current defense minister, Ben Wallace, widely uh, respected as one of uh, really the world's leading security thinkers. And he is truly extraordinary on or off the record when you uh, talk to him. And then Penny Mordant, uh, first female defense uh, secretary, having served in the May administration. Kathleen, take us away on sort of the Johnson legacy, the Johnson security legacy, uh, uh, I should point out uh, to the audience, Dove wrote a great piece that whatever you think about Boris Johnson, he deserves credit for the leadership role he took in Ukraine. And I think everybody agrees uh, with that, right? I mean, truly one of the times where Johnson uh, was channeling his hero, uh, Winston uh, Churchill, um, who, who was a bi biographer of Churchill, in fact, and it was a really great writing on that. Kathleen, you uh, were formerly at Chatham House, spent many years in the United Kingdom, got your PhD there. Uh, and then we can go to Dove uh, for a sense as well, given that he was at Oxford a couple of years before you were at King's. Uh, talk to us a little bit about Johnson's legacy, where we are and where we're going. Well, there is nothing like a British political crisis to like make you break out the popcorn and just watch <laughs> to see what's going on. And I'm really interested in 
uh, my the other panelists' views today, because Jim and Dove have uh, lots of experience with, and Patrick have lots of experience with with um, the Brits over the years. So, um, no no shortage of opinions, I think, from this panel. Um, my, so I'm I'm sort of struck that you know, so he survived a, a vote of no confidence a month ago. Barely, but that was the sort of indicator that the for many that the writing was on the wall, the blood was in the water. Um, he he didn't have long to last, and the question at that time was, well, how long was it? Well, it looks like it was a month, and I'm struck that it's not Brexit, it's not mishandling of COVID, it wasn't even really Partygate that that led to his dismissal. It's the the Pincher affair, and and so um, is it you know, sort of this tipping point of scandals or, you know, is this, is, is the British establishment taking sexual assault more seriously? Um, I, I, I don't know the answer to that, but that's one thing that I'm, 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 I'm observing as I, as I look at this in terms of Boris Johnson's legacy and foreign policy. It's so there, there's sort of, I've seen in some quarters, folks wondering if this means that, that, the UK might rejoin the EU, and I, I don't think so. I think that's that is firmly off the table. I'm not sure Brussels is interested in that conversation, and I'm not sure what um, Westminster is either. Um, I think that the the Ukraine policy is likely to hold. Um, some of the multilateral uh, coalition stuff that we've been seeing, like the joint expeditionary force in the in the north um, in Europe's high north, um, probably remain the same. So I think that there's going to be continuity on the defense policy side. But uh, again, in true British political scandal fashion, this is just absorbing to watch, and and uh, it's it's really anybody's guess as to if he's actually going to be leaving. Uh, number 10 sooner rather than later? Is he really going to hang on into the fall? What does that mean in terms of transition? Um, does the government feel like it can do much while he's in this caretaker position? So it might create some paralysis within the system um, before a new leader is elected. But um, yeah, lots lots of questions right now. Indeed. And uh, uh, Patrick, I don't, I wasn't trying to diss you. Uh, you're, you attended St. Anthony's uh, College of Memory serves correctly at Oxford. So I should have put you in that category uh, as well of having a very, very uh, good uh, uh, education uh, in the United Kingdom at one of uh, history's great uh, universities. Um, you know, Jim, uh, as we were talking about this, you drew some very strong similarities and obviously uh, uh Boris Johnson and Donald Trump have been compared. But actually, if you listen to his resignation address, it did sound remarkably Trumpian, um, right? It was not apologetic, uh, didn't suggest anything was wrong, suggested it was political whim, reminded everybody that he's the vote getter. Um, and look at me and what, I, what I've done, even though critics say that the administration hasn't done as much as it should have been doing across the board and that Brexit is, is yet to take its toll. Um, you know, what, what do you see as, as the similarities uh, from a hands-on perspective, and I'm going to go uh, to uh, Dove here in, in a moment, but just wanted to give you that sense because you, you'd made that uh, tie-in. Well, I, I think what's particularly uh, Trumpian today, uh, and that, um, that, that it really is concerning, is that we're not even sure uh, how, how and whether uh, Boris Johnson will leave the office. I mean, and, and, and what I mean by that is, 
uh, it seems like he's in a he's in a mind to keep fighting and to try to overturn or somehow skip out of having to leave office. And that, of course, that reminds me of of uh, Trump uh, after the election and saying things are rigged and, and all these crazy uh, schemes that are coming to light now uh, about how he was trying to work the system or break the system to stay on. And in, in a sense, you get a whiff of that with Boris Johnson, too. It's, it's early. We'll have to see. Uh, but uh, but you know it's it's that certainly is a is a parallel that struck me. Uh, just one Thank, more point. Uh, but one, one thing though, right? I mean, in in fairness to Boris Johnson, whatever you think of him, right? I mean, he has not uh, assailed uh, nor challenged the integrity of the British voting system, uh, nor put out there that well, you know, votes weren't counted in you know Grimsby or someplace else, right? I mean, so at least um, no. But right. I, I think he has done is he he seemed to have been blaming a lot of of groups within the conservative party for his demise in other words he's well, been that's true yes yes at um, at at other things that were trying to make a case almost that it was rigged or it was this is the move of a, just a few people or uh, you know so we'll see where it goes I, I but i think you're generally right though that with the scheme that trump came up with is certainly uh, much more complex and broader and still out there and very dangerous. Uh, so the parallel is not so close because of the uh, the nature of what Trump was doing and the nature of our system versus this with with uh, Boris Johnson. So but it, it's just the mindset, really, of at the end of the day, he's not going to go quietly. He's going to find a way, it seems, at least in this early time, it looks like he's looking for a way to stay uh, as long as he can, one way or another, and we'll see if the if the vote of confidence kicks him out or or some other uh, approach that's inherent in the in the British system. But if, if but Tobago, if I could just say one, yeah, quick, of course. Um, you know, I do believe for the United States, his departure um, is going to is is going to cause a problem. Not necessarily because he's gone, but it's going to throw the UK into this um, this limbo in terms of whether it's Ukraine or a lot of other things that the U.S. and the U.K. do together, um, it's going to throw them into this policy and this leadership uh, limbo uh, for, for a while. And then finally, when they pull somebody on uh, as the prime minister and they start getting some traction, it's going to take a while there, too. So this really does sideline the U.K., um, as a forward-leaning partner for the United States for, for a while. And I do think that's going to hurt a bit in, in Ukraine, but I think it's going to hurt with uh, China policy and other things where the UK and the US stand side by side. And uh, not that they won't stand with us, but they won't be perhaps as vocal or they won't quite be as strong as they will uh, when they come back in with leadership and a firm direction. Because right now, uh, they're in a limbo and they're adrift. And uh, and I think we're going to feel that. Um, on, on the other hand, right, I mean, you can give Johnson a little bit of credit, right? He named his uh, cabinet. Uh, ben Wallace remains uh, defense secretary. Wallace made clear, look, it, you know, there's a lot going on. It's important for us to be engaged. And Trevelyan's still in the job, Liz Truss and others. Uh, you know, even if Sunak uh, is uh, and uh, is, is gone, Um uh, Dove, let me, and obviously UK critically important security partner, and indeed, right, I mean, things could get better if it is Ben Wallace, for example, somebody who's universally respected uh, in the job of, of defense uh, uh, secretary. Uh, Dove, you've been watching British politics for a little while, and you uh, have a lot of uh, very close friends on both sides of the political aisle uh, there, as well as in, in uniform. So to walk us through, uh, and a great piece, uh, giving Boris Johnson the due that he deserves on, on the Ukraine crisis, 
uh, and appeared on, in The Hill today. Sort of your sense on, on, on where we are, where we're going, and, and what the Johnson security legacy is going to be, good, bad, ugly. Apart from Ukraine, I think Johnson's legacy will be ugly. And I do agree with Jim that uh, there are parallels with Trump and the degree to which there are not parallels is because the two systems are so different from each other. Uh, But I do have to take issue with my friend Jim on uh, where the U.S.-U.K. relationship is going to go. Clearly, if Ben Wallace or Penny Mordaunt or, frankly, Liz Truss becomes prime minister and she's interested as well, I think things will stay very much on even keel. Uh, The Brits, particularly the conservatives, are very ruthless about getting rid of their leaders, uh, whether it was Thatcher or or Chamberlain or uh, Or Churchill or Churchill or Churchill or Churchill or Eden. I mean, it's just that's how they are. That's how. And I don't think the 1922 committee, which is the committee of backbenchers that basically makes or breaks prime ministers, is going to want to give up its power, especially after, you know, having suffered under Johnson for a while. Um, If you look at who actually resigned, they were two former chancellors, one uh, a chancellor who resigned and the other was a health minister, internal people. Um, We're talking about external relations. I think that the uh, the special relationship with the Brits is probably as strong now as it's been at least since Major's time and maybe even since Thatcher's time. I don't think that's going to change. Uh, once there's a new prime minister, bang, bang, you're going to see a new cabinet. And while there will be domestic issues because Johnson just didn't pay attention uh, and those will have to be dealt with internationally, I don't think that's the problem. The other area that I, to some degree, disagree with Jim on is how quickly this guy goes. Uh, Keith Starmer, uh, the leader of the op- of the labor opposition, has basically said he would force a no confidence vote if the 1922 committee on Monday does not get rid of this guy. Uh, I cannot believe that if he forces a vote, right. most of the Tory backbenchers are going to support Boris Johnson. It, the mud will stick to them. It's going to hurt them. They just lost two by-elections, you know, surprising by-elections, uh, by-election losses going to want to lose some more. They're in trouble already. So they're going to want to say, yeah, we got rid of them. So I think this guy is out within the week. Uh, I th- I'm hoping that it will be one of the former defense ministers or, or, or rather one former one current defense minister or Liz Trust. And in that case, I'm pretty confident things will move ahead. And just look at that joint uh, FBI <laughs> MI5 statement. Um, which, uh, frankly, was kind of surprising that they came out in the open like that about China. I don't think Britain is softening on China at all. Um, you know, it's, it's, thanks very much, uh, Dove, uh, for uh, bringing that up, uh, because it was um, an extraordinary statement. And in, indeed, the statement that was uh, issued by the DNI was even more extraordinary uh, right, saying, uh, warning state and local municipalities, be very, very careful about China and the influence that China is going to try to exert at the subnational uh, level, right? We in Washington are stepping up our game. State and local governments, be very careful at the game that the Chinese are trying to play 
at much, much lower levels of American politics, whether it's on industrial concerns or factories or, or what, what have you. Uh, and I thought that was an extraordinary statement. And I agree with you. It was something really to have Chris Ray uh, and the MI5 uh, together um, at that press conference in, in London, obviously. And I should have said it was Sajid, uh, uh, the Sajid Javid, uh, who was the health secretary uh, who stepped down with Chancellor uh, uh, Sunak that started this uh, cascade of, resi uh, of resignations. I think sort of 15 more dozen or so, I can't remember what the right number was, followed. Um, just, to, just to interject for a second, um, I, I, I agree on the point that Dove made as far as, you know, the, uh, the impact on the U.S. and what the future could look like. My, my point was more on the, in the short to medium term, because I think it could be, it, this could take a while for them to sort themselves out. And so it's really during this interregnum uh, where I feel we're going we're gonna to miss them. If it takes a long time, but like Dove says, if it's going to be really quick, uh, then we won't feel a ripple. But, uh, but if it's not quick, if it's going to be drawn out a bit as, because of party politics and that type of thing, then I think we will miss their presence. But it's really more of a short to medium term, uh, that, 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 that's, that's, that interregnum. And just very quickly before we, we move on, uh, Kathleen and Patrick, do you guys have anything you want to add uh, to the British discussion as we round it? Uh, as we round it out, Vago. I mean, having lived in the UK for six years, um, I'm very uh, taken with the the writing of Max Hastings, and and he sees this as a a chance for Britain to restore trust and and, and higher standards, really, of uh, of governance. Um, so, for all of the good things Boris Johnson did in terms of projecting a UK global role, especially the staunch uh, support for Ukraine, as as Dove has written um, and said, um, he really did hurt the reputation. Uh, and betrayed his own party and, and so many in his own party and, and country. And I think he's he's now had to pay the price. I think he will pay the price. I agree with Dove. This is going to happen pretty quickly. Um, but I also agree with Jim that it may not uh, be a, an easy, quick transition. And, and therein lies uh, a weakness for the UK trying to maintain the high level it's been playing uh, in Europe and internationally. It's interesting uh, you you raised that, uh, Patrick, and just uh, really quickly to follow up on it and, and just ask this question of all, and then we do have to go into a lightning round because we're uh, running uh, short on time. Um, you know, numerous folks have raised, you know, Britain had always, uh, right, going all the way back to the start of World War II, said, look, you know, when we said we would defend Poland, uh, we went to war because of Poland, uh, effectively, um, because of uh, an alliance there and, and uh, the work to try to defend another ally, Norway, uh, for example, in the course of the war, was pointed to by a lot of people that Britain is a nation that abides by its relationships and security commitments. And that is what's held Britain in such good stead as a, as a global security leader. But in the wake of Brexit, this sense of sort of you can't trust anything that this administration does, and by extension, why would we trust Britain? And I've heard guys, whether they're Swedish or Finnish or anywhere else, raise concerns that it's like, hey, look, if they can't abide by Brexit, you know, that's a commercial uh, uh, relationship. It is certainly not a defense relationship that requires blood. Why would we trust them on that? Patrick, do you think that is that what you're referring to, this sort of sense of, of not really being able to trust uh, Britain? Ultimately, because I, I'm not sure what the latest that Max uh, wrote is. I mean, he's he's a tremendous commentator and have a lot of respect for him. But is, is that sort of what you're talking about? Like yeah, this sense that Britain can't be trusted? Yes, there's both the domestic aspect of Boris Johnson's rule that, again, he was unfettered by any rules. They didn't apply to him and he betrayed his own party as well. Uh, and it, but he also betrayed allies. And, you know, think about the French. 
Um, and I think there, um, you know, the Brexit uh, rules as well in terms of uh, what's happening uh, with Ireland and on trade. I mean, these are issues that uh, the UK can do much better on. Uh, and I think, as Dove pointed out, there are a number of candidates there who are likely to bring some pretty quick success uh, instability and predictability to the UK, but there are also some other candidates out there that we haven't talked about who could who could uh, muddle the waters, uh, muddy Life. the waters. There are there are twelve or fifteen candidates. I was just looking at the odds makers on these issues. Right. I, I don't want to I don't want to bring them up. Okay. I, I think Ben Wallace or Rishi Sunak uh, are likely uh, the front runners, and Rishi Sunak has been hurt uh, because of uh, the allegations over his wife on taxes. But he's not out of the running. He's still a top candidate. Right. Uh, you know, and then you've got the others, Penny and Liz, uh, who are very much fighting for this and could well be the uh, the compromise candidate. Um, all right. Real quick. And Go just, ahead, please, Kathleen. Um, because I'm struck during this conversation um, that one of the things to watch in this is, as Jim was pointing out, how Boris actually goes and the destruction that that might be caused in his wake um, and what that means for the health of British politics moving forward. It could be, you know, the guillotine, as, as Dove was saying, and, and he's out. And that that is a sensible scenario. But what does he do afterwards? Does he feel aggrieved? Does he um, try to make the case that it was that small cabal that, that ousted him and tries to regain the the prime uh, prime ministership? Those are those are longer term questions for the British, you know, British government um, and British parliament that that could create some some turmoil and instability in the long term. The other thing to re remember, though, is that Boris Johnson's largely hung on because there hasn't been anybody else to credibly take him on. And it's interesting that the Conservative Party is now saying, you know what? Yes, he's a vote getter, but the, the the risks of having him in here are are far. The, the downsides are just too great. Um, the rewards right. aren't enough. It's it's time, um, and whether that translates, whether that sentiment translates into the sort of w what he does afterwards, um, and and how he actually departs, um, it remains to be seen. Jim, uh, really quickly, latest uh, on the war. Um, Russia's war on uh, Ukraine, where we stand as an alliance and what jumped out at you, interesting, over the course of the week. And then I want to go to Dove uh, to ask about the grain uh, issue and whether or not, then what that suggests about, right? Well, Turkey is always good at acting up and cross-connecting things as part of messaging, right? That that ship did not leave with Ukrainian grain. That Russian ship didn't leave with Ukrainian grain on it, absent a signal, right? But But take us through the war right now and what you thought was interesting over the past week. Well, just the just the reporting seems to be that the Russians are taking a strategic pause, although I'm sure if you're on the front lines in Ukraine, you're not feeling a strategic pause uh, as the uh, munitions continue to come come in over on top of your head. Uh, I, I think the president's uh, his recent the recent drawdown authority sending over uh, the NASAMs, you know, which is the uh, it's a it's a, one of our more modern uh, anti uh, aircraft, you know, air defense systems. I think that's uh, that's good. Although, golly, you know, we only send a handful, uh, maybe two or three. We, we're sending uh, MLRS ammunition, which is good because they're um, they're uh, certainly using those that system to a good effect. We know that. 
155 millimeter ammo. And, and you know, the ammunition uh, supply that I'm mentioning is really important uh, because uh, they're using it up quite a bit. And we got to keep that, that munitions pipeline going. It's just critical. So I was glad to see that. Uh, I don't know quite what a strategic pause is going to look like for the Russians. Uh, we know uh, all about their logistics issues and their manpower issues, but but strategically, what does this mean here? Um, uh, and I, and also, I just I, I just uh, remember it's a strategic pause, not a tactical one, and there's still going to be a lot of fighting. But where they go now after these two recent uh, victories, if you will, that they had taking these cities, uh, there was a there was a tactical withdrawal by the uh, Ukrainians, which I'm glad they did. I didn't want them to be caught in that cauldron and, and smashed to pieces. They were able to withdraw um, successfully, which is which is not easy to do. So um, the war continues, uh, but but there seems to be a place now strategically where the, the Russians might be thinking about where they go from here. Uh, we'll have to we'll have to see. But um, uh, we need to keep the, the resupply coming and uh, and, and deal with uh, this question of um, of how long we think we can we can sustain both ourselves and the Europeans. How can how long can we sustain this resupply? Uh, we, we can't let some type of strategic pause, if you will, in air quotes. We can't let something like that uh, uh, make us stop. Uh, we uh, our resupply. We've got to keep that up and uh, somehow get them to a point where they can have a counteroffensive if that is deemed possible at all. But to do that, they're going to have to have a lot more supply than they have now. And and they've got to rearrange forces to be able to do that. Uh, so that's kind of where we are right now. Uh, we'll see what the next days hold. Dove, uh, your sense uh, on, on where we are, where we're going, and also what the Turkish grain uh, shipment means. And then we'll wrap it up with uh, the president's um, Mideast uh, trip. Uh, take it away in terms of the Turkish issue in Ukraine and what's next. With respect to Ukraine, I tend to agree with Jim on this. Uh, my biggest worry uh, is what happens if uh, the Republicans take uh, Congress. And the reason I say that is there are so many noises coming out of uh, the Republican Party that are essentially saying, why are we spending so much on Ukraine? Uh, and uh, one could worry that eventually people are going to get tired of it. Uh, and that is exactly what I think Mr. Putin is betting on, not just with respect to the United States, but with respect to Europe as well. And so in many ways, this strategic pause may well be to see how are things moving in terms of public opinion vis-a-vis uh, -vis Ukraine. Uh, Putin, of course, being very sensitive and uh, trying his very best to influence that public opinion. So I think that's one we've got to watch because Jim is absolutely right. We always, we, all military people uh, and, and their advisors always underestimate uh, how much ammunition is going to be used up. And so you've got to maintain that supply. You probably have to increase it in order to let the uh, Ukrainians do what they need to do. So there's one issue there. The other issue, quite frankly, is that uh, Mr. Zelensky, President Zelensky, continues to say, I'm not going to trade land for peace. That is something that the Europeans are not signing up to. They're big land for peace people. Uh, and so uh, <laughs> they just are. And, no, no, no. It's, it's yeah, I, it was it was the delivery, Dove. Yep. And so uh, that is going to that's going to increase pressure on him and how he deals with that and how Putin exploits that. Uh, again, is uh, something to watch very closely. 
Now, in terms of the Turks, uh, look, they continue to play a double game. Uh, the, that's why the grain thing is not a particularly great surprise. They don't want to uh, totally walk away from Russia. And it's more in many ways to simply tell NATO, you've got to pay a lot more attention to us. You've got to do things that we want. And in that regard, uh, Mr. Erdogan uh, publicly said that uh, unless he gets what he wants from Finland and Sweden when he wants it, well, his parliament just may not be ready to approve their membership. So the game is hardly over. Uh, and uh, I've quoted this great philosopher before, Yogi Berra said it as well as anybody, it ain't over till it's over. Uh, exactly. Um, we've got about a minute left. Anybody want to comment on this? And however much time we have left over, Dove can give us an update on the president's important trip to the Middle East in the time we have left. Uh, Kathleen, anything you want to add, Jim or Patrick? You know, Russia maybe lost the short war. It's trying to win the longer one uh, through a, a war of a, a terror as much as attrition. And the, the lesson that we're learning, this was a discussion we had uh, this week with the commandant, General Berger at Hudson Institute, is on our own defense industrial base. We just do not have in the peacetime defense industrial base the ability to uh, create the precision guided missiles, the javelins, whatever uh, is needed in, in uh, peacetime. And so these things cannot be easily replaced uh, quickly and they can't be fixed in the field because they're, they're very high tech uh, in terms of other systems that are being provided to Ukraine. So we have uh, challenges that we need to be learning from and, and, uh, and correcting for because uh, we're likely to be in this period of uh, less than uh, peacetime operations for some time. Kathleen, Jim, as we uh, wrap this uh, up. No, I, I agree exactly with, with, with Patrick. There are so many ripple effects into the U.S. Um, uh, defense establishment that we've got to learn from. And, and this, this logistics aspect and the industrial aspect is a key one. And I'm I'm sure, I'm hoping that we are digging deep into it to learn about ourselves through this stress test. Well, and also, you know, it's not just us, it's it's allied defense industrial bases that are affected, exactly. right? They're, they're, they're uh, donating equipment and capabilities to Ukraine and where's the backfill? I mean, so this isn't just something touching the US, it's all of us. And if it, given short supplies, um, how are, how are we going to allocate resources? Who's going to get the next, um, get the ammunition? Who's going to be in the line to get Correct. get supply, given that there's um, limited industrial base capabilities? Look, I mean, everybody, you know, whenever anybody's in a pinch, they always look to the United States and we're the ones who manage to pinch uh, to make stuff magically available unless it, it's not available. And that's the reason why this whole just-in-time mentality and you'll pay to get it when you need it ends up not working. And you find out that if you are helping a friend and an ally and in a hot war, a lot of stuff gets burned up really quickly. I find every one of our assumptions, whether on aircraft, ships, vehicles, or everything else, defies historical norm. We right. lose a lot of ships when the shooting starts. The Brits lost six uh, frontline combatants in the Falkland Islands. And it's also, you know, just-in-time logistics it's it's in our bloodstream in in ways that that we haven't sort of experienced historically i would argue um you know right. amazon gets us stuff overnight I, and and so make that mindset shift it's it's deeper than assuming it's in the warehouse 
right? right exactly it's it is um it, we're so used to things being delivered on demand in all aspects of our lives that um changing our mindsets to account for um, these longer term defense industrial capabilities and how how they're impacted during wartime. It's 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 not just an industrial based shift. It's a total mindset shift, I'd argue. I agree. Indeed. Indeed. Um, Dove, 30 seconds, Middle East update. Go. OK, but very quickly. Uh... In and when we fought the sec the Persian Gulf War in 1990-91, we didn't have just-in-time logistics. Now we do. Um, right. In terms of the president's visit, uh, apart from Yad Vashem, the Holocaust Memorial, and, and those sorts of things, to me, the two biggest ones coming out of the visit to Israel will be this what's called the uh, IU2U, uh, uh, Israel-India, uh, United Arab Emirates, United States summit, which is quite remarkable that they're going to have. Uh, he will be, President will be greeted by the interim prime minister, uh, Yara Lapid, who obviously is, is also running for, for office. Uh, but that summit, again, shows you how the Middle East has, has really fundamentally changed. The other uh, major area, I think, uh, that's going to take place is not going to be any public uh, further cooperation between Israel and Saudi Arabia. They're just not ready yet. There may be something when he visits uh, Riyadh, but it, it's not going to be what some people might hope for. But what is going to take place is that it looks like there'll be industrial cooperation between Israel and the United States on this new laser uh, defense system called Iron Beam, um, which, which shoots down mortars and, and short-range missiles and, and so on which could be very, very important for us, for our troops, if they're still facing trouble uh, in Iraq or elsewhere, where the firing is gonna be rockets and, and mortars and things of that sort, rather than long range missiles. And uh, anything on the Iran nuclear deal special to discuss this week? Well, it's simply that uh, our side isn't giving up. Uh, the Iranians keep making noises that they would like to see something, but in practice, nothing much seems to be happening. Guys, thanks so very much for joining us. Terrific conversation as usual. Have a great day, great weekend, great week, and look forward to having you back on again next week. Thanks so very much. And now a word from our sponsor, retired United States Army Major General Jeff Schlosser, who is the Executive Vice President for Strategic Pursuits at Bell. We've been building creative and innovative aircraft, next generation types of capabilities for almost nine decades. Bell is the company that can deliver that. Thanks very much, sir. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please follow our daily podcasts and visit the Defense and Aerospace Report website to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook at Defense and Aerospace Report, and check us out on LinkedIn. And stay tuned for our weekly cyber report sponsored by Northrop Grumman. Thanks again to Bell for their generous sponsorship, and we'll see you again tomorrow.